Amen. Thank you, Kyle. I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. You lead me, you keep me from falling. We've been studying that the last couple of times together in the book of John. Um, He will keep us from ultimately falling. You will not lose one. Jesus said, I'm not going to lose one that you've given to me. Um, We are kept close to his heart. And surely, as Psalm 23 says, your goodness and your mercy hunt me down, pursue me, chase me. We're going to see that yet again in this text before us. It's a, it's a big section of scripture. Uh, I wanted to make sure that we saw, I believe, John's purpose in intertwining these two uh, aspects, these two stories together. Um, so it will be a big chunk. It's a little bit bigger than what we looked at last week. Last week, we looked at the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. Remember, John is writing so that those who read what he is writing would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and by believing they would have life in his name. So every time we come to a text in John, we're asking, how is this showing us the glory of God? How is this revealing the glory of God in a way that we would see it, we would see glory, we would bow the knee, we would believe? Especially when we look at the betrayal and the arrest, how is God's majesty, how is Jesus' glory going to shine through in those terrible moments? We looked at three ways in which it did shine through, his authority, his protection, and his obedience. The Christian paradox is that in the most terrible moments of life, God's glory is being seen the most brightly. In the narrative before us, we're going to see Jesus interacting with the exact sin that he's about to die for. We're on the road to the passion of the Christ. This is the beginning of what Jesus is going to experience Even here, he's going to be beaten. He's going to be bound. He's going to be mistreated. And the punishment for the sin that Peter is going to commit is about to be taken by Jesus on the cross. Now, these stories are not unique to John. John's narrative of Jesus being tried before a Jewish council and Peter denying Jesus, that's not unique to John. John is writing what we had seen in the Synoptic Gospels. There are a couple aspects of it that are unique. Only John tells us about the first trial of Jesus before Annas, and he actually leaves out the second trial of Jesus before Caiaphas because the synoptics had that down. And only John tells us of the restoration of Peter as we get to the end of his gospel. But the fact that Jesus is on trial and the fact that Peter denies Jesus, those two facts are not unique to John. We knew those from the synoptic gospels. What is unique to John is the way that he writes with those two being intertwined. These two accounts are going to be woven together, and that's not an accident. John is purposefully weaving these two stories together. We're going to see Jesus on trial, Peter's denial, Jesus on trial, Peter's denial. And Jesus is, or John's weaving these accounts together for the purpose of showing us a contrast. Light and darkness, faithfulness and faithlessness. John wants us to see very clearly a contrast between Jesus and Peter. One in boldness, denying nothing, and one in cowardness, denying everything. In utter cowardice, to deny it all, John wants us to see that contrast. So let's look at these verses together. We'll read them, verse 12 through 27, and we'll see the way John intertwines these two together, weaves them together in an amazing way. Verse 12, so the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. 
And they led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, but Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, you're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire for it was cold and they were warming themselves and Peter was also with them standing, warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it. And he said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Father, these accounts are familiar to many of us, and that familiarity might breed a sense of contempt or a sense where we know these verses. But you have so much to teach us this morning. You have so much to reveal to us about your grace, about our sin, about our Savior. Father, I know that Sunday mornings are hard mornings. It's difficult to wake up. You've finished up a week. You're about to start a new one. I'm supposed to be resting, but it doesn't feel like rest and, and the chaos of this world. It stirs around in our hearts and our minds. Maybe even at this moment, people dealing with aches and pains, those are crying out louder in their ears than your word. It's not because they want that. God, I pray that whatever we are going through, the noise would cease, that your spirit would be pleased to catch us up completely in the sound of your voice and no other sound. That as your word is proclaimed, that we would hear you. And as we meet with the God of the universe this morning, that we would be undone at your love and your grace. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. 
This passage can be easily divided into four sections. Jesus is on trial, Peter denies. Jesus is on trial, Peter denies. Uh, but what I want to do is, is give those four sections the exact same heading because ultimately I believe Peter's on trial as well. So we're going to look at Jesus' trial part one, Peter's trial part one, Jesus' trial part two, and Peter's trial part two. Let's look at the first trial. Jesus' trial, verses 12 through 14. So, John says, so because everything that had just happened was allowed by Jesus. Jesus was in full control. Remember, they are going to arrest Jesus and he is arresting them. They're going to bind him and he is binding them. So he allows them, the Roman cohort, the commander, the officers of the Jews, around 600 people. Jesus allows them to arrest him and to bind him. The proper way of arresting a criminal as taught by the academy in Rome was to take the prisoner by the right wrist, twist his arm behind him so that his knuckles would be touching between his shoulder blades. And then at the same time, you would jam your heel down into the prisoner's right insep. This is the beginning of the pain that Jesus is going to be experiencing. And my question of this text is, why did they bind him? And you know the answer. They were afraid. They were afraid of his power. They were afraid of what they knew he could do. But that lends itself to another vitally important observation in this text. One of the things that we have learned in the Gospel of John over and over again is that miracles can never create saving faith. Witnessing a miracle does not get you saved. And here we see the same thing. The entirety of these 600 men had just witnessed two incredibly powerful, miraculous miracles. When Jesus said, I am, 600 people just fell down at the sound of the name of God. That's not explained in just natural terms. That's a supernatural phenomenon. And then when Peter cuts off Malchus's ear, Jesus heals him in front of everybody. And nobody in that mob says, time out. Why are we arresting this guy? I mean, did you see what just happened when he said what he said? Did you see what just happened when he healed this man? He loves this man. He's taking care. He's kind. He's, what, why are we doing what we're doing? Nobody says that. After witnessing both of those miracles, the whole mob says, all right, glad that's out of the way. Let's get him. And they take him. And they mistreat him. And they lead him bound like a lamb led to the slaughter. Miracles do not produce saving faith in a human heart. They can point to what will produce it, but a miracle on its own will not produce that. John Calvin said, why was he bound? Jesus was bound so that our souls could be set free. They bind him. Verse 13, they lead him to Annas first. Annas first. Annas He's going to be called the high priest in verse 19. He's technically the ex-high priest, but just like we would refer to our presidents as Mr. President, even though they're not the president in office anymore, once a president, always a president, once a high priest, always a high priest. So he's called the high priest, not only because he was a high priest, so once a high priest, always a high priest, but also because he is the most powerful high priest in the first century. He is the most powerful high priest. He's actually the one, the power behind the power that's going to get Jesus killed. Five of Annas's sons, Caiaphas, his son-in-law, and one of his grandsons, one of Annas's grandsons. So five sons, Caiaphas, who is his son-in-law, and one of 
Annas' grandsons, are all going to serve as high priest between 16 AD to 66 AD, which is 50 years. And the reason why that is an incredible statistic is because you were supposed to be a high priest for your entire life. You're supposed to be a high priest for the entirety of your life. And what's staggering is Annas is the one who's making all of these puppets move. You're doing what I want you to do? No, take him out. You're doing what I want you to do? No, take him out. That's why John includes this note. He's father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. That year. Last year, maybe not. Next year, who knows? Annas is the one who's running the show. So why take Jesus to Annas first? Number one, because he's the most powerful high priest. He's the power behind the power. Number two... If you remember, Jesus cleansed the temple two times, once at the very beginning of his earthly ministry, once at the very end of his earthly ministry on uh, Monday of the Passion Week. And when he cleansed the temple, he was destroying what commentators would call the Bazaar of Annas. This is what Josephus called uh, a circus, a Bazaar of Annas. Annas had a way of making money off of the Passover. And we talked about that before in the triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple. People going in have to present their lamb before a priest to see if that lamb is spotless. And every lamb has something wrong, even though it's a spotless lamb. The, high, the, the priest would say, sorry, there's something wrong, there's a blemish. But good news, you don't have to travel back home to get another lamb. We have a lamb that we can sell to you. And it's pre-approved. It's spotless. We've double-checked. This is, this is a, a totally kosher lamb. Here you go. Have him. Oh, but sorry, it's going to cost you a lot of money. Oh, and the money that you use doesn't work in the temple. You have to get it changed out. And that's going to cost you some money too. That's why when Jesus went in to cleanse the temple, what did he do? He overthrew the, the tables of the money lenders, the money changers, and he threw out the animal sellers. Those two people groups were used by Annas to just make money. And Jesus had walked right into the biggest money-making scheme of Annas and destroyed it all. So Annas really does not like Jesus. So take him to Annas. The third reason why they're going to take him to Annas, not only is he the power behind the power, not only the bazaar of Annas was destroyed by Jesus, so Annas wants to see him and wants him dead, but also they're buying time for the Sanhedrin to gather. This is in the middle of the night, early in the morning, so they're buying time for all the Sanhedrin, the 70 members of the council, the Supreme Court of Israel, to gather together to place a verdict on Jesus. John says Caiaphas, verse 14, was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. That was in John 11, when the people said, uh, the priests and the religious leaders said, this man is causing problems, and he might start a mob that Rome's going to hear about, and they're going to destroy us because of this guy. What should we do? And Caiaphas says, it's, it's good for one man to die, then the whole nation suffer. So let's kill him. The reason why John puts that note in verse 14 is John wants us to know right off the bat, before the trial even happens, that Jesus is not going to get a fair trial. Caiaphas already knows in his heart and has signed the death warrant in his heart, he wants Jesus dead. No matter what it takes, and so these trials are just going to be a formality, and we're going to see that. It's night. This is an absolutely illegal trial. There's actually more than a dozen ways that this trial breaks Jewish law. And they were okay with that because they want him dead. It's at night. It's not allowed to happen at night. 
has to happen between sunup and sundown. There has to be a witness to speak on defense of the one who's being accused, and we never see that. If two witnesses do not corroborate in what their testimony would say, if they disagree in any way, the case would be closed. And we're given notes in the synoptic accounts that the testimony against Jesus was disagreeing. They couldn't even figure out the false testimony of how it's going to go and be presented. There's multiple ways in which this is an illegal trial. And John lets us know that in verse 14. Caiaphas just wants him dead because Annas wants him dead because of everything that Jesus had done to destroy their religious system. So we have the beginning, the first trial. This isn't really a trial yet. It's the entrance into the first trial. And there are six trials that Jesus goes through. He goes through three Jewish and three Roman trials. The three Jewish, it goes Annas, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin. And then he's going to be led away to Pilate. And then the three uh, Roman trials will be Pilate, uh, Herod Antipas, and, and Pilate again to finally um, condemn him to be crucified. So here we are at the very beginning of the first trial, the first Jewish trial with Annas. Then John moves over to Peter. Jesus is left being bound, arrested, walking to Annas. And we move to Peter. Verse 15, this is Peter's trial. Peter's on trial here. There's no judge, but there is an accused, and there's a very unusual prosecuting attorney. So we see verses 15 through 18, Peter's trial. Verse 15, Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. First of all, I want to say right off the bat, we, we condemn Peter, and rightfully so, for what he's about to do. But he and John are the only two disciples that actually follow. Uh, that takes some guts to be able to do that. I don't know if I would have done that. So he's following. Mark tells us that he's following at a distance. Mark 14, verse 54. He's following at a distance. John is the one who is following right behind. John tells us Peter was following, and so was another disciple. Not named, but if you turn over to chapter 20... Chapter 20, verse 3, John says, So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. Now, we know without a shadow of a doubt who this other disciple was. From the other synoptic accounts, this is John. So Peter and John are the ones running to the tomb. But John won't name himself, and so he calls himself the other disciple. We see in the Gospel of John, he's called the other disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. So here, most every commentator, every theologian, every Bible scholar, most every Bible scholar will say that in chapter 18, verse 15, the other disciple is John, and I think that he is. And John gives us a note about himself. That disciple was known to the high priest. How was he known to the high priest? He was a fisherman. He was a disciple of Jesus. Well, if you trace out his lineage, John's mother is Salome. Salome is related to Mary. Mary is related to Elizabeth, and Elizabeth is married to Zacharias. So we have Salome related to Mary, Mary related to Elizabeth, Elizabeth married to Zacharias, and Zacharias was the priest. So maybe John had been given access to certain things in the temple. He maybe some uh, commentators say that maybe he was selling them fish. Um, they got their uh, fish specifically from John and from his family. So John's going to be allowed in. 
He's known to the high priest. He enters with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple does what anybody would do. Hey, I want to get my friend in. I'm in, but I want my friend to be with me. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out, spoke to the doorkeeper, and he brings Peter in. And as Peter's being brought in, a little slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, you're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? It's almost as if John is saying, hey, he's one of us. He can come with me. And the slave girl opens the door, and as John walks by, yeah, I know John, he's one of the disciples, but are you one of his disciples? And Peter says, no, I'm not. I'm not. We find when Peter says, I am not, in verse 18, Peter's going to end up outside. I wonder if this interaction with the slave girl, as John says, hey, he's with me, he's with me. And the slave girl says, are you with him? And he goes, I'm not. The slave girl goes, well, okay, then get out, stay out. This is only for people that know him. And he has to leave. And he's warming himself by the fire. It's cold, it's night. Again, this is illegal, but he's standing with the enemies, warming himself. He finds himself on the outside. How did he get here? He was willing to fight against 600 men with swords, and he's afraid of a little girl. Her question is not aggressive by any means. I think that she is genuinely asking, hey, are you with this guy? John's with him. We know that. Are you with John who's with Jesus? And Peter goes, nope, I'm not. Okay, then please stay outside. There's no aggression here. This is not someone to fear. Why the change? How does he get here? I think that the sudden temptations that we face in life can be the hardest. We're expecting this is going to be difficult and we can fight against it, but then that sudden temptation, whoop, I did not expect that. But I think more than that, based on the text that we have read and gone through a couple months ago, Peter overestimated himself. Though all will fall away, he said to Jesus, I will not. He overestimated himself. And because he had, he thought he was beyond such sin. And because he thought he was beyond such sin, he wasn't even aware of the temptation because he didn't think he had to be. I don't need to be aware of the temptation because I'm beyond that kind of sin. An inflated sense of his own capacity dulled his sensitivity to, to the temptation. An inflated sense of his own capacity dulled his sensitivity to temptation. He exaggerated himself. He overestimated himself. And whenever we overestimate ourselves, we underestimate the power of sin. Whenever we overestimate ourselves, we underestimate the power of sin. You realize that your greatest vulnerability may be your confidence in how committed you are to Jesus. Your greatest vulnerability may be your confidence. Well, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. Nothing will ever change that. And I'm following him with everything I have. One of the greatest expressions of Christian maturity is the phrase, I can't handle this. People who say that are showing Christian maturity. I can't handle it. I mean, look at Peter. I can handle it, and he doesn't. Look at John. John never said, I can handle that. John probably thought, oh, it's probably me. It's probably me. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be the one. 
and he's the one who follows Jesus all the way to the cross. I can't do it. I need help. These are great expressions of Christian maturity. So I think we need to learn from Peter. We are not as strong as we think we are. We're not as intelligent as we think we are. We're not as committed as we think we are. We don't know the Bible as well as we think we do. And we need to ask God for immense grace to help us. Now, he will. Remember, we looked at that last week. If the trial is big enough and your faith is small enough, hypothetically, you could lose your salvation. Remember this from last week? If you weren't here last week, you've got to get that sermon. This is very important. And Jesus says, I will never allow you to be tempted beyond what you were able. So the temptation will never be too strong. And I will always strengthen your faith to be able to withstand the temptation. So your faith will never be too weak. So God will make it such that you can never lose your salvation. You could if he didn't allow these two things to not happen. Peter's saying, I don't need your help, God. I'm fine on my own. Remember when we studied Ephesians 4? I think this was about five months ago, six months ago. We studied Ephesians 4. We came to that word equip. Pastors are given to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Equip. That word has two main emphases. Fixing what is broken. We went through a number of texts. And supplying what is lacking. We went through a number of texts. So equip. Fix what's broken. Supply what's lacking. That means every single one of us are broken and lacking and we need fixing and growing. And I think Peter's admonishment to us, I think if he were here this morning reading this text alongside of us, I think he'd be weeping and I think he would say, oh, we are far more broken and far more lacking than we think we are. We need help. We need each other. Layer upon layer. Just when you think I fixed it, God pulls back another layer to show, no, you're still broken and I'm going to help you. So don't despair when you find you have overestimated yourself. Don't despair when you see brokenness in yourself. Don't despair when you see lacking in yourself. Don't be discouraged. That's grace. That's grace for God to reveal that to you so that you can work on that and grow in the means of grace that God's given to us. Don't despair. Even what Jesus had said to Peter Peter said, I'll never fall away. And Jesus said, yeah, you're actually going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And then he says, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. He wants to take you apart. He wants to break you. And Jesus never says the answer. That verse is so fascinating to me because Jesus says, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. And he never says, and here was my answer. If I'm Peter, I'm like, wait, time out. What did you say to Satan? Like, this is huge. This is about me. Tell me. And Jesus says, when you've turned, strengthen your brothers. When you've turned, you're going to fall. You're going to falter. You're going to fail. But not ultimately. Not ultimately. As soon as Peter says these words, I am not I just picture a rooster somewhere. Just open his eyes. Man, it's early. Why am I up? Kind of just, this is, this is weird, but something is something's making me think it's time to get up. Stretch its neck. Start to think, well, if I'm up, I might as well crow. Peter's trial. He's failing. The third trial. 
Jesus' trial before Annas. Now we actually see it. It's in verse 19 through 24. The high priest, this is Annas. Again, he's the ex-high priest, but he is called high priest um, because once a high priest, always a high priest. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Notice that Jesus never talks about his disciples. He said, I'm going to protect them. If, you, if it's me that you want, if the warrant is for me, let these people go. And he's protecting them even here. It, notice the pronouns. I have spoken openly. I always taught. I spoke nothing in secret. Just I, I, don't worry about them. I'm not talking about my disciples. I'm protecting them. And he protects us as well. But Jesus answers about his teaching. Verse 20, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've spoken nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. Now, there's several different ways to read this, but knowing that Jesus is never going to sin and knowing that Jesus wants to get to the cross, we can say he doesn't have a bad attitude here because that would be sin. And he's not trying to make this stop because then he wouldn't get to the cross. So what is he doing? This is where John's showing his glory. He's putting Annas on trial. He's asking Annas, can we just talk about legality here? Can we just talk about what's happening? If you want to legally try me, there's a way to do it. And this is not it. Jesus is not defying Annas. He's asking Annas, honestly, look at the legality of what's happening. Annas is not allowed to question the accused. The high priest was not allowed to question the accused. Jewish law said high priest isn't even allowed to question the witnesses because the high priest is so powerful that if he asks a question in a certain way, it might sway the, the decision, the vote, the, the judge of what was going to happen. So the high priest is not allowed to say a word. He's not allowed to question. And yet Anna steps up. He starts speaking. He starts questioning. And Jesus is just saying, are you doing what is right? Are you doing what is legal? When he said this, verse 22, one of the officers standing nearby strikes Jesus. That word for strike means on the face, a, a, a blow to the head. This is illegal. You're not allowed to beat a man who's innocent. He hasn't been proclaimed, declared guilty yet. Jesus says, if I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if I've spoken rightly, again, this is just a legal question. Am I doing anything that is illegal? No, then why do you strike me? Again, Jesus is not being uncooperative. He is just calling this court to legality. This is the first physical blow against his face that we are told of. This is a fulfillment of Micah 5.1. But notice what Annas does. Jesus has just put Annas on trial. In verse 24, Annas sends Jesus bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Annas just evades the question. I, I don't want to deal with this. Just as Jesus was supposed to be arrested in the garden, he's arresting the officers. Just as Jesus is on trial before Annas, it's actually Annas who is on trial. And Jesus is interrogating his heart. He's in full control. He does this with Caiaphas. Again, John does not tell us the fullness of what happens with Caiaphas. Caiaphas says, are you the son of God? 
Are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? And Jesus is going to answer, I am. And, and you'll see me coming on the clouds of heaven. This is a, a prophecy in Daniel of the Messiah coming to judge wickedness. So what Jesus says is, yes, I am the Messiah. And though you're judging me right now, there's going to be a day coming where you're going to see me coming back to judge you. Are you doing what's right? Are you righteous? That's what he's doing here with Annas. In complete control, not sinful, not trying to get out of this, just in complete control, calling into question, interrogating Annas' heart, which is grace. It's grace to say, I see something that's wrong. Let's fix it. Let's change it. Repentance could have happened. Obviously, it didn't. But this is grace. We move to the fourth trial, Peter's trial, Peter part two. We've seen Jesus' trial part one, Peter's trial part one, Jesus' trial part two, and now Peter's trial part two. This is 25 through 27. Simon Peter is standing, warming himself. I just, I picture Peter standing by this fire with a cloak wrapped around him. Maybe you can just see his eyes, maybe a little bit of his nose. So somebody kind of looks, looks in and says, I, I think I know you. And they ask, you're not also one of his disciples, are you? I, I feel like I've seen you before. And I picture Peter just putting the cloak up. No, I'm not and hiding. We're told that in the synoptics that an hour goes by, and then the next question happens, verse 26. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter had cut off, it's a relative of Malchus, says, did I not see you in the garden with him? I was in the garden. I saw you. And Peter denies it. Luke brings these two accounts together in Luke chapter 22, where just as Peter's saying these words, they are bringing Jesus out. And Jesus makes eye contact with Peter. And all of these things happen at the exact same moment. Eye contact, I don't know him, rooster crows. For three years, Jesus had loved Peter. For three years, Peter had been with Jesus faithfully, and here he denies it all. And the synoptics tell us that this time he actually curses. He brings down a curse of God upon this man and upon himself. If he is not speaking honestly, may I be cursed and curse you for even thinking something wrong of me. He curses. He denies what would you have done? What would I have done? Put yourself in his shoes. Would we have denied? Oh, we want to think we wouldn't have. What's the most common reason that people don't open their mouth to share the gospel? What's the most common reason? It's fear of man, right? It's not even fear that somebody's going to hit us or punch us. It's fear that they will think we're weird. Let's be honest, right? When I share the gospel, I'm not afraid somebody's going to deck me. I'm afraid they're going to think, man, you're crazy. You're a weirdo. And that fear of man can keep me from opening my mouth. Oh, I absolutely would have denied Jesus. Because Peter has a reason to genuinely be afraid. Malchus's friend and somehow related family member says, you're the guy who tried to take off my brother's friend's cousin's ear. You're that guy. And maybe Peter looks down and sees a sword and goes, yeah, no, I'm not that guy. 
if Peter had a very legitimate reason to be afraid, and we don't, and yet we still deny, we still disobey, we absolutely would have denied. Don't overestimate yourself. What happens? Verse 27, Peter denied it, and immediately, immediately a rooster crows. The first time he denies, I think the rooster wakes up. Second time he denies, he's like, man, i got to get ready to do something here. Third time the rooster crows. He stands up, rears back his head, and shatters the night with his crow. This is strike three. And what is the rooster saying? When Peter hears the rooster's crow, he hears the rooster saying, You failed. You're a coward. You're a loser. You're a failure. You're a failure. You're an utter failure. And we know that Peter hears that loud and clear because he's going to weep and run away, absolutely despairing what he just did. Can I ask you a question? Has a rooster ever crowed because of you? Shouting into your sinful darkness, you failed again. Strike three, you're out, you failed. I thought you said you loved Jesus. Failure. Have you ever run away in shame like Peter when you see your sin and then the rooster of guilt weighs heavy upon you and you you can't take this anymore? You can't bear it. You hear condemnation crying out over you. You say, it sounds very personal and it sounds like you know me. (laughs) Yeah, I know you because we've all had this experience. We've all had the rooster crow for all of us. We are all guilty. None of us is exempt from the rooster of guilt crowing over us. You failed. You've sinned. You've done it again. Even Jesus' most faithful followers failed. That's the whole point of John intertwining these two accounts together. Jesus never fails. Peter always fails. Jesus never fails. Peter always fails. Every single one of us fails except for Jesus who never fails. It's the point of the way that John is setting this account up. The rooster's crow means guilt. Hear the rooster crow loud and clear over your life. You are guilty. You have sinned. You've denied Christ by your actions, by your words. But the rooster's crow is also a summons to repentance. The rooster's crow is a summons to repentance. Psalm 32, if God's hand of guilt is heavy upon you, David tells us, let it force you to be reconciled to God. Let it force you to repentance. For us, let it force you to run to the cross. If you feel guilt and condemnation over you at this very moment, there's a provision for you for that guilt to be taken away. There's a way for that shame to be removed, but you have to do it the right way. If you're attempting to get rid of guilt or shame in any other way than God's way, it will never work. That's what Judas does. What's the difference between Judas and Peter? Judas betrays, Judas denies, just like Peter. Judas only does it once, Peter does it three times. What's the difference? They both feel guilt, and they both ultimately want to get rid of the guilt. Judas just goes through his mind and says, how do I get rid of this? No, I'm definitely not going back to the Savior because I hate him. Judas hates the Savior. Peter hates his sin. 
Judas says, I don't want to go back to him. I'm definitely not going to get my guilt removed by him. Is there any other way? And he goes through, nope, 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 won't work, won't work. Okay, I'll just kill myself. That's the only way I can get rid of this feeling. Peter doesn't hate the Savior. He loves the Savior. That's why this is so depressing to him and despairing to him. And he's ultimately going to run back to the Savior when he's restored at the end of this gospel. The rooster's crow means guilt. The rooster's crow also is a summons to repentance. But the rooster's crow finally means a possibility of restoration. The rooster's crow in your life is a, possible, a possibility of restoration. Turn to Luke chapter 22. We alluded to this earlier. Luke chapter 20, 22, verse 31. Remember, Paul Tripp, for those of you at the marriage conference, you can't confess what you haven't grieved. You cannot grieve what you haven't seen. And you can't repent of that which you haven't confessed. So the rooster's crow over your life means you are guilty. You must repent, but you can be restored. It's grace. It's grace. Luke chapter 22, verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, when you've come back, strengthen your brothers. You're going to fail. You won't ultimately fail. Your faith will not ultimately fail. But you will fail but you'll return. You'll turn again. Satan's demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. Um, great, Jesus. Can you tell me what you said to Satan? Did you say yes or no? Well, we know he said yes. Go ahead. You can, you can have permission. But you will turn. You will be restored. And because you have repented and been restored, now you can help other people. Strengthen your brothers. Now you're not going to go to your brother saying, how could you do that? You're going to go to your brother saying, I did the same thing. Let's, let's go press into grace together. If you're here this morning and you are trying to get rid of your guilt, your condemnation, the rooster is crowing over your life, and I want that thing to be killed. The only way that you can do that is running to the cross. Run to the cross where every sin on him was laid. Every sin, past, present, and future, every sin, action, attitude, thought, every sin you have ever done and will ever do, Jesus was punished for those sins. Turn to Christ. And maybe you're here this morning and you have turned to Christ. You have turned from your sin to the Savior. You've repented and you are redeemed. You are a child, a son or a daughter of the Most High God. And yet you still feel condemnation. You still wrestle with guilt. This is where I would say, let guilt do its job. Let it send you to Jesus to be forgiven, to be cleansed and reconciled, and then throw guilt away. It's, it's done its job. That's where Satan loves to go find the guilt that you've thrown away, that God's thrown away. Pick it back up and say, oh, you forgot something. Here's some guilt. Take that. You don't want to drop that. If you've gone to the cross, that's what communion is about. If you have gone to the cross and you're a believer, you come to these elements to say, forgiven, finalized, it is finished, and I have nothing but the joy and the gladness and the favor of my God upon my life because of what Jesus did. No more guilt. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. Everyone fails. 
Only Jesus never failed. Father, we thank you so much for these accounts intertwined by John to give us a beautiful picture of the unfailingness of our Savior, faithful to the end. As Peter is failing left and right, Jesus stands firm, confident, never failing. As Peter is denying left and right, Peter in his sin, struggling, cannot get his act together, you are getting ready to die for the very thing Peter is doing in these moments. Father, the rooster has crowed over all of us, crying out, and maybe even this morning, crying louder than ever, you are guilty. God, may we not run from that. May we embrace that accusation and clearly identify, yes, we are. We are guilty. We have sinned. We deserve separation from God. But my Savior has made an end to all of my sin. When condemnation presses in, this is when we look upward to see Christ. And that's what these elements are all about. So, Father, as we have been preparing since Family Bible Hour this morning for communion, for partaking, for celebrating Our guilt is gone. Our shame is done away with. We are forgiven and we are free. God, I pray for those in this room who have not experienced that freedom because they have not turned from their sin and turned to Christ, that today would be the day of salvation. That they'd embrace the accusation over them this morning and not try to find any other way to remove their guilt, but go to Jesus who will cleanse them. And God, for those in this room who have gone to Christ for cleansing and maybe still feel that condemnation, may they take these elements in a way that would wash their souls. They would would feel the cleansing, that they would understand the reconciliation that they have. And God, may we press in together as these elements are about to be passed out. May we press in together as we sing the truths of Scripture set to uh, music to a tune. May we sing of the shelter that we have in Christ to do away with our guilt, our shame, and our condemnation. He took it all. He bore it all. So we have no condemnation to fear. God, that, that brings us the greatest joy, the greatest peace, because if God is for us, no one can be against us. May we sing with that joy even now. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to ask the men to come and take